I want to shift now to a study of the book of Jonah, which is one of the minor prophets. Remember, there are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And Jonah is one of the minor prophets, but probably he's the most famous because everyone, even unbelievers who don't give a hoot about scripture, know about Jonah and the whale, although the Bible never uses the term whale. But uh, and it, it has a lot to do with what is going on. Now, I want you to do the best you can to just listen to me talk for about five minutes. And then I would like to go to the notes that were sent to you. And I hope you have in your computer or printed out or however you do things like that. I want to talk about the role of the prophets. Now, just listen to me for a little bit. When Solomon died in 931 BC, the kingdom split. It divided into two parts. The 10 northern tribes seceded from, left the Davidic monarchy and formed their own kingdom. It is called the kingdom of Israel. The two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to the Davidic monarchy, and that is called the kingdom of Judah. In the kingdom of Judah, and that would be the Davidic monarchy, there is a mixture of very, very good kings like Hezekiah, Josiah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and some very wicked kings like Manasseh and others. In the northern kingdom, there is not one good king. It is a false monarchy. It is a rebellious monarchy. It is a monarchy that fosters the worship later on of Baal, when we get to Ahab and so on. But it, it, they do not go to Jerusalem to worship. They set up their own worship center, their own, their own priests. It is an apostate kingdom. Jonah will be a prophet to one of those kings in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. His name, and it'll be in your notes coming up a little bit, his name is Jeroboam II. He will serve as a prophet in his court. And so the book of Jonah is written by a prophet named Jonah who served in the court of Jeroboam II. And he does that, he serves in that capacity in the 800s, and we're obviously 800 BC. But the, the important point here is that Jonah is given an astonishing assignment. He is to go and preach the message of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And I want to say more about that more than likely next week. But with that sort of historical introduction, and you, you really do need to kind of understand that, that by this time, at 800 BC, just rounding it off, by about 800 BC, there are two kingdoms. The United Kingdom of Israel doesn't exist anymore. It's been split into two parts. The ten tribes revolted against the Davidic monarchy and formed their own kingdom, the Kingdom of Israel. Their capital is Samaria. The southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, are the, is the Davidic monarchy. And from that is ultimately going to come Jesus. Their capital, of course, is Jerusalem, which is where the temple is and so on. 
Jonah serves the northern kingdom. Now, this is the second thing I want to say. During the monarchy period, not during the Exodus, not during the book of Joshua, not during the book of Judges, but during the monarchy, God instituted a change in the way in which he governed and the way in which he revealed himself. Once the monarchy is formed, which remember King Saul's the first king and he fails, then King David, then David's son Solomon, and then when Solomon dies, the kingdom tragically spits. But anyway, God begins to put another individual into his system. You had the king, you had the Levitical priest, and you had the people. The Levitical priests were to teach the people the law and to administer the sacrifices. But God changes something. He introduces the prophet. And the prophet is not connected to the monarchy, not connected to the king. It is a person called by God to speak his word, God's word, to the king and to the people. And those prophets will usually start, and we have you know, four major prophets, 12 minor prophets, start their oracle, the decree, thus saith the Lord, and then they'll decree what God is saying. And almost always the prophets are lamenting, chastising, confronting Israel or Judah with their idolatry. You are not loyal to God. You're mixing your worship of God with the Baals or Chemosh or many of the other gods of the ancient world. And so the prophets are going to be challenging the people, challenging the king to come back to God. Some of the prophets will be very successful. In, in that, God will use them to bring the people back to unique worship and devotion, but many of them will not. So the role of the prophet, and that's what I've introduced there in the first page in the notes, the role of the prophet becomes very, very important in the monarchy period of Israel. And don't forget, much of the Old Testament is about the monarchy. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, of the four major prophets, the 12 minor prophets, and then all of those are about the monarchy. So a big portion of the Old Testament is about the monarchy when Israel had a king. And so God is using the prophet now, the prophets, and there are many of them, the prophets to declare his word to the king and declare his word to the people. And the goal always is repentance. All right, now I've said two things by way of introduction. One is the division of the monarchy into two parts. And then second is the importance of the changing of the monarchy. God introduces a new role, a new person, and that is the role of the prophet. Got it? You with me? All right. The silence either means you don't have a clue what I'm saying or you're with me. <laughs> are, are you saying that, that Jonah represents the first? these no not no not necessarily the first okay. there are i mean well if you want me to answer that question as far as we can determine the first of the prophets would be amos hosea 
and probably Joel. But I mean, that's really beyond our, our, our study. But Jonah is an early, he's an early prophet, but he would not be the first of the chronologically speaking. All right, I want to introduce this, is, and I don't think this should be new to you, but I still want to review it. I want to do a, one more thing here by way of introduction. Remember that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And there are, there are three really important covenants to always keep in mind when you're in the Old Testament. The first covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, again, this is in your notes. Some of this I've, I've written in your notes, but the Abrahamic covenant, I've even given you a little chart there. But the Abrahamic covenant is God's promise to Abraham that he would, coming from Abraham, would be a people as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the, sh- sand of the seashore, the Jewish people. And God would give them land and God would bless the world through them. The second covenant is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. The Mosaic Covenant is how are the people of God, Israel, to walk with God? And the answer to that is God's moral law, Ten Commandments, and the sacrificial system, which is how God atoned for sin. How did, a, how did Joe and Josephine Israel, Israel walk with the Lord? They, they went through the sacrifices, and God cared for, atoned for, and forgave their sin. But the difference was they had to do that every year. The third covenant is the Davidic covenant. That's a promise God made to King David. It's summarized in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God promises to David an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal kingdom. Who fulfills that covenant? Jesus Christ. So those three covenants define, now there's going to be another one that I'll be talking about later, the new covenant, but I don't want to talk about that right now. But those three covenants kind of define, and that's why the Davidic monarchy of Judah and Benjamin is so important. The kingdom of Judah once that splits in 931 BC, the kingdom of Judah is the true Davidic kingdom. That's where Jerusalem is. The Davidic monarchy is preserved there. And that will eventually lead to Jesus um, Christ uh, later on. So with all of that said, one, the historical understanding of now you have two kingdoms. Number two, the role of the prophets. And number three, the covenantal relationship God has with Israel. Okay, you got that? That should be somewhat of a review, particularly the last point. All right. Now, with all of that said, I want you to kind of get a sense, and I'm going to throw up a, a, a little slide here. And this is the map of the ancient world at this time. Now, I, I drew a big red arrow so you don't miss it, to Nineveh. You, you have a copy of a map like this in your notes. But this, and I, I think that's purple, isn't it? This purple area, this is the Assyrian Empire, okay? And by the time that Jonah, the book of Jonah shows up, Jonah lives in Samaria. He's a, in the court of Jeroboam II. God will say to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. 
I want you to go to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which surrounds your kingdom, which has enslaved all of the kingdoms around you. And the Assyrian Empire is the most ruthless empire in history up to that point. They would go into a city, slaughter all the men, and stack the bodies of the men at the gate of the city saying to everyone, if you do not submit to our rule, this is what we will do to you. They were ruthless. They were barbaric. And so Jonah, who is in the court of Jeroboam II, when he hears God's call upon his life, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel of the kingdom of of Israel about Yahweh Elohim, about the loving God, Jonah's response is, I can't wait to go. Let's move it out. No, he doesn't. Jonah is a Jewish nationalist. He loves his people. He loves his kingdom. He does not want to go to the capital of the most ruthless empire in human history up to that point. It would be similar to God tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Jim, I want you to go to the capital city of Iran, or I want you to go to the capital city of North Korea and preach the gospel. I mean, just as you know, the geopolitical situation of the possibility of even doing that is unbelievable. So it's that similar type of situation. The arch enemy of Israel, the Northern Kingdom, was the Assyrian Empire. And God is saying to him, I want you to go to the capital city. Now, before I put the slide down, at this time, that is at the time of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire was in a significant downward spiral. It doesn't last real long, but a significant downward spiral. There had been a total eclipse of the sun. There was a significant famine. There was widespread suffering in the annals of the Assyrian Empire, and we, we have found those in the libraries that the British Empire had, uh, had uncovered in the late 19th century. We have a lot of the chronicles. We know the period in which Jonah would have went. This was one of the great downturns. It doesn't last real long. It's a period of about a decade, decade and a half, but this is a period that is devastating for the Assyrian Empire. It is, it is a devastating period of them, for them. And they're therefore very vulnerable physically and spiritually so that when Jonah comes into the capital city, it is an remarkable response. We will see people from the city of Nineveh in heaven. We will see people that accepted the message of Jonah and repented and began to worship the truth. We will see some of them in heaven. And so this is, Jonah's book is one of the most astonishing books of the Old Testament on the grace of God. Jim, before you pull that map down, will you show us where um, Jonah was when he was instructed to go to Nineveh? Yes, if you, let, let you, if you see where Nineveh is, I drew that big arrow, just let your eye go to the to the west or to the east in kind of a southwest southeast direction, and you'll you'll come to uh, well. Unfortunately, Samaria isn't on this map, 
but you can see Hazor, H-A-Z-O-R, and you see Shechem right along the coast. Samaria would be right in between those two. It's about a about a seven hundred mile trip. I see it. Okay, and it's all on land, isn't it? Okay, that's correct. That's correct. Thank you. And when John, uh, we'll talk about that next week because we're 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 out of time. We haven't really get into the text, but I, I wanted to do this all of this introduction because you need to understand the geopolitical situation. And you also need to understand why it is astonishing that God wants him to go to Nineveh. But you also need to understand the important role of the prophet. And Jonah is a nationalist. He will say, we're in an unconditional covenant relationship with you, God. Why do you want to save these people in Nineveh? And, that, and the book is going to close where Jonah is ticked off that God saved them. And I want to talk about that when we get to chapter four in a couple of weeks. But I'm really thankful we were able to do all this introductory material to kind of get it all on the table, because I'll be referring to it. And if you have time, read over those first two pages of notes that I, I gave you. It talks about the role of the prophet, talks about the covenants, and the things that are going to be important for the language that's used in the book of Jonah as we start digging into it next week. So next week, I want to say a little more about the person of Jonah and then we'll begin to study chapter one. We're going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm going, to, I'm going to put into our discussions a lot of the historical background and a lot of the unique aspects of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, in terms of the Hebrew language, is an absolute literary masterpiece. It's one of the most polished, literary, in literary terms, most sophisticated books among the prophets of the Old Testament. It's an extraordinary book. So we have a lot to study. It'll be exciting. This morning, we want to continue um, and really dig in now to our study of the book of Jonah. Um, I want to, <coughs> excuse me, I want to review some of the things that uh, we did last week. And uh, uh, most, almost all of these PowerPoint slides that I'm going to use here that you're going to see are ones that are in your note packet. So uh, let me just use these, and some of it is review, just walk you through uh, some of this introductory material. I want to remind you, as we briefly talked last week, when Solomon died in 931 BC, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided. Jeroboam led a revolt against the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem, and 10 tribes followed him and formed the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom, called the southern kingdom of Judah, had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the capital, of course, was Jerusalem. You could argue in a very real sense that the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel, was an illegitimate apostate kingdom because they rejected the Davidic monarchy, rejected the kings of Judah. And there is not one good king, not one good king in the northern kingdom, whereas in the southern kingdom of Judah, there are several very good reformed kings. But it is important as you look at this chart, secondly by way of introduction, is that God was in a covenant relationship with his people Israel. And if you look at those covenants, uh, there are quite a few, but again, you have this in your notes. But the Abrahamic covenant, I'm looking now on the left 
and I'm going to work through the right. On the left is the Abrahamic covenant. And in that box is an un, the word unconditional. It is an unconditional covenant. It's unilateral and it's unconditional. If you go to the right, at the top is the Palestinian covenant. That's from Genesis 12, 7, where God promised Israel the descendants of Abraham land. And then below that, a little bit to the right, is the Davidic covenant, summarized in 2 Samuel 7, 16. God promised to David an eternal throne, dynasty, and kingdom. And then to its left, or at the bottom of the Palestinian, is the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant. Now, what I want you to notice about that is that the Abrahamic and Palestinian Davidic covenant go on into the kingdom of Christ when he returns. The Mosaic covenant ends, and you can see that it ends at the cross. And the Mosaic covenant, Mosaic law, uh, Exodus 20 is a good starting point, because that's where the Ten Commandments are. But anyway, the Mosaic covenant was not about salvation. The Mosaic covenant was how an Israeli person before Christ walked with God. And the other thing that is important about the Mosaic Covenant is that Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the Mosaic Covenant, thereby inaugurating the New Covenant, which is the bottom box, that bottom line in the chart that you have in front of you, and it's in your notes. That was uh, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, but it is inaugurated by Jesus. And you and I live in the under the new covenant. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ is called the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled, and God's promises to the Jewish people, defined by the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic covenant, will be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled in the coming kingdom. Thirdly, we talked very briefly, uh, and I didn't spend a lot of time on that, but this, this chart that you have in front of you is a summary of the monarchy and how it fit into Israel's theocracy. Theocracy means God ruled. And you have Yahweh God, then the king, then the Levitical priests, and then the people. But you'll notice off to the right, and this only occurs in the monarchy during the period of, of Abraham, during the period of, of the judges, during the period of, oh, well, I should say even in Exodus, the wilderness wandering during the period of the judges and then under Joshua, the prophets were not really considered to be a singular, separate, important office. But where you and I now in our study of Jonah, which is written about and, and deals with material about 760 BC, the prophet is very important. God speaks to the prophet, then the prophets speak to the king and to the people. Now, I'm just, I'm saying that because we're going to talk, after we're done with Jonah, we're going to look at the prophet Habakkuk and the same thing. Habakkuk is a prophet during the time of Judah when they're about to be destroyed by the Babylonian kingdom. We'll talk about that later. So the prophets become those individuals that deliver the oracles of blessing and the oracles of judgment to the king and to the people. I will say more about that as we get further into the book. This you've seen last week. You have a map in your notes. I just wanted to make sure, because we're going to see it as we get into chapter one, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And I put a real big arrow so you can't miss it. That was a central city in the Assyrian Empire. 
And you can see by the purple area on this map, the Assyrian Empire at the time that we're studying was the dominant empire, if you want to use language you use today, was the superpower of the ancient world. They had even conquered all the way over into Egypt. This you have, this is a synthetic chart. You have this in your notes as well. Um, when I was in graduate school, I had to do a synthetic chart on every book of the Bible. But when Chuck Swindoll's synthetic charts became in the public domain, I started using them. And so it's so much better. But you, I like these because it gives you a quick visual summary of any book of the Bible. In this case, it's Jonah, which is a small book. But I took a thin, thick red line and underlined those headings. In chapter one, Jonah will be running from God. In chapter two, he'll be running to God. In chapter three, he'll be running with God as he delivers the message to Nineveh. And in the final chapter, he's running against God. And you'll see that it's a remarkable chapter because it just seems you can hardly believe that he's acting and saying what he's saying. So the book of Jonah is an important book, and it is quoted by Jesus. Jesus refers to Jonah. He refers to Jonah as an historical figure. He refers to Jonah as an historical figure that has something to say to us. And then finally, and you have a copy of this in your notes as well, this slide. One of the major themes of the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty and providence of God is, is a real theological concept, and it's a very important thing for you and me to grasp in a chaotic, messed up world we live in. But you'll see that when we get to these, I'm going to really stress these. But you'll see as, as God is hurling this great wind, this storm, and then he will say, you have done as you pleased. And then you'll see this throughout the book, and the Lord appointed and you'll see the very storm, a great fish, a plant. And then Jonah's prayer, which is a marvelous prayer. It's one of the most marvelous prayers in the Bible in chapter 2. Just highlights and praises God for his sovereignty and his control. And then that theme of the book, it's the thesis of the book. Salvation is from the Lord. And we will talk about that as we as we look at uh, chapter two, his great prayer. And then finally, when that great fish, the Lord commanded the fish. And so you, uh, it's just a major theme of the book that God is sovereign, his providence is real, and Jonah cannot run away from God. God has a purpose for him. God has a plan for him. And to resist that is futile. So there's some of the major themes and, and ideas. Some of it is reviewed from last week. Some of it is new, but all of these things uh, pretty much you have in your notes. So let's begin now to dig into the book itself, okay? So if you have, I don't know how you're doing this, whether you have a copy of the Bible, you have it on your slides or whatever, but I want to look at chapter one of the book of Jonah. Now, I am reading from the ESV translation, so there may be a little bit of a difference here and there, but for the most part, I think it'll be pretty easy for you to follow. If you have a question about the translation or particular words, don't be afraid to ask me. We're going to take our time. I'm looking at primarily getting through chapter one today. Now begin, verse one of chapter one, book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
Now, let me stop there. That little phrase, the word of the Lord, note that the name for God here is Lord in capitals. And when you see that term Lord in capitals, that's Yahweh. That's the great I am. That's a self-sufficient, self-existent one of the universe. And I think all translations, I'm pretty sure about this, all English translations put that in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The other thing about this, now the word of Yahweh came. So the, 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 the sense of this is the communication of authority, the communication of power, but the communication of a directive. And he has a directive. He knows that he, God, knows exactly what he wants Jonah to do. I thought I'd comment on the name Jonah. Jonah is a Hebrew name, which means dove. And dove is one of the symbols in Israel that, of course, will be picked up in the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. He descends as a dove. It's a simile, as a dove. And so that's important. And um, son of Amittai, we, we do not know who that is. But Amittai itself is a, a term, it's a rich term in Hebrew, son of my faithfulness. The idea that it's a very faithful man. So I'm assuming that was true of Jonah. Now I want to repeat something I said last week. I did not say it this week in our review. But Jonah is a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II is the king, at this point, the king of Israel, king of the northern kingdom, and he will serve in that period of time during Jeroboam II's reign. And so that, again, the approximate time, and we, we really can't be certain about this, but the approximate time that the events in the book of Jonah occur are about 76, 760 BC. Again, it's, I can't die for that. I'm, I'm 760 BC, give or take 10 years on either side. So that's approximately because that fits, that date fits with what is going on in the Assyrian Empire, which I'll say more about in just a minute. All right, so there are kind of some introductory things to remind you who Jonah is. He is a prophet, and he's in the pro he's a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II, one of the kings of the northern kingdom. Now, here is the word of the Lord to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now, you will note that term arise, that is a, it's a Hebrew command, it's an, it's an imperative, but it has arise, I mean, you are to rise up and head directly to Nineveh. There isn't any time lag here, this is, the expectation is you will instantaneously obey what I'm asking you to do as a prophet for me, Jonah. But as you know, because I pointed out on the map, we briefly talked about it last week. I mean, Nineveh, it would be comparable to God saying to me, Jim, I want you to go to Beijing, China. I want you to go to um, North Korea. I want you to go to the heart of Iran. I want you to go to the heart of the Saudi Arabian monarchy. I mean, it, 
where it is totally illegal, it's life-threatening to preach the gospel to any of those areas today. So for Jonah to be given the command to go to the center of the most ruthless, horrific empire of the ancient world up to that time was an unimaginable command. I mean, it's, it's like, what? Why would you do this? Well, the reason is given at the next paragraph, the next sentence. For, you could translate that, because their evil has come up before me. So, how do we process this? Well, Jonah is not going to Nineveh to pronounce judgment. God will do that. He is going to Nineveh to call it against it because God is going to give them an opportunity to repent. So, remember, as I showed you in that first slide, now I want to remind you of the mindset of Jonah. Jonah is a Jew. Jonah is a prophet of God. He's in the court of Jeroboam II. Jonah would have the understanding that he is part of the chosen people of God. He is a Jewish person in an unconditional relationship with the living God. And he is being commanded to go to the arch enemy of the Jews who are pressing all around them. Jeroboam II's kingdom has been and will be threatened by the Assyrian Empire near the end of his reign. So it's like, why would I go to these pagan, uncircumcised, horrific, horrible people who are our enemies? And that's why the next verse, what's the first word of verse 3? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, in your notes, I've given you a, a map right as a part of chapter 1, which shows you that Tarshish is on the very east, excuse me, western end of the Mediterranean Sea. So in a sense, consciously, willfully, and deliberately, Jonah is going in the opposite direction. Instead of heading east to Nineveh, he's headed west to Tarshish. I mean, he is going in the absolute opposite direction. And notice the prepositional phrase that follows Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He heard the word of Yahweh. Now he's running from the presence of Yahweh. What does King David say in his great meditation in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your presence, O Yahweh? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? Nowhere. I cannot get away from you. So Jonah, I mean, this is, don't miss the power of what's happening here. Jonah is defying the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am in the universe. He represents him in the court of Jeroboam II, and he is now defying his God consciously, willfully, and deliberately. 
Now, we're going to find out part of the reason for this is he does not want God to show mercy on the Assyrians. He will say later on in the book, I know what kind of God you are. I know you are a God of grace. I know you are a God of mercy, and I don't want you to save those people. So I'm not going to go. That's not exactly the heart of an evangelist, is it? But Jonah it's had resentment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's it's a bitter, and you're going to see that it becomes very clear. It is a bitter spirit. I don't want you to show grace on those people, so I am not going to go. It is honestly, and that's why I'm trying to really embellish this to make sure you really get this. It, it really is, to me, unimaginable that he thought he could do this with impunity. That he thought he could defy God and God wouldn't do anything about it. So you have the set now. It's set up. A clear command. He, is a, he, Jonah, is a prophet of Yahweh. Yahweh has given him a directive, and he defies it. He goes in the absolute opposite direction. Now look at the middle of this verse. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So you, again, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, it really is in the Hebrew there's, there's like a wordplay going on here. He went down to Joppa. So he is in Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, which is on a high mountain. So to go down to Joppa, which is right along the sea, he's literally going down. Then he goes down to a ship. He went on board. The Hebrew is he goes down into the ship. And three times the text says, Tarshish. Tarshish, Tarshish, Jonah, and Jonah wrote this book. Jonah is emphasizing, I defiantly went in the opposite direction. I know where I'm headed. I want to go where I'm headed. And I don't care what God says. I am going where I'm headed. And the text says twice, from the presence of the Lord. Now, again, his theology is not that weak. He is defying God, and he's consciously fleeing from God. But it is silly for him to think that he can flee from the presence of Yahweh. But this is defiance. This is rebellion. This is open-ended disobedience. He has no idea where this is going to lead, but he's not going to do what God wants him to do. All right. Now, in a sense, you could say the first three verses are laying on the table a defiant rebellion. So what is God going to do about it? I have a question. Oh, please. Um, it, there's a theme in the first three verses where it says, come up before me, um, uh, flees from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. This, 
The second two can be like uh, like a kid running to you know to the corner of the yard trying to get away from dad, which has never really accomplished it. But the first one kind of strikes me as you know the evil has come up before me, like I didn't know about it before, and somebody made a report of it. Um, could you delve a little uh, deeper on there? It's a, it says in one place, like there's no place to run away from God and God is omniscient. But then on the other hand, God cannot be in the presence or, you know, participate in evil. So is there like a separation or a boundary there? Or is this just a statement of, all right, you know, it's like the cup has in other places in the Bible, it talks about the cup being filled to the, it just hit the brim and that's it. The, the last straw. It's, yeah. it is, it's that sense that latter sense that you mentioned. So come up before it, me. It isn't, is not... Yeah, it isn't that God has missed this for, you know, a hundred years mm. or so since the Assyrian Empire was founded. Uh, what it's saying is, has come up before me, they have reached that level where it's pouring out, you know, again, think of the idea of a canister or, and it's pouring out, uh, I've got to do something about it. It is time for me to judge them. And, and that it's, it's, it's somewhat similar to what God says to Abraham. I'm going to give you land, but I can't give it right now because my wrath is not yet filled up against Canaan. It's going to take another 400 years before that occurs. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a, it, it, you see two dimensions there about God. Number one, he's aware of it, but in his grace, he gives them more and more time to repent. But there comes to a point where, yeah, that long-suffering term, that it's, it's no, I've got to deal with it. What Jonah wants is God to wipe the Assyrians out. <laughs> God is not going to do that. God is going to, in his grace and mercy, give them a chance to repent. And Jonah, you're the man to take that message to. I mean, that is what is, this is God, the sovereign of the universe. That's why Yahweh is such an important name for God in this book. God, Yahweh, is sovereignly choosing a rescue mission for the Assyrians. And that rescue mission is going to be facilitated by Jonah, the prophet. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. It isn't that Jonah doesn't understand. It isn't that Jonah doesn't know who his God is. That's precisely what he did, because he knows who his God is. He knows what God's going to do. He will rescue the Assyrians if they repent. And they're going to repent. He doesn't want them to. He wants God to wipe them out. And I mean, I'm really getting animated here. But I mean, this is, that's why this is open defiance of a prophet. Because he knows what God is going to do. And he doesn't want God to do it. And therefore he's saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the facilitator of this. I'll be happy for you to take me over there and I'll tell them that you're going to wipe them out. And then you do it when I'm done. But that's not the message. We'll see more. Jim, Jim, this is Fred. I have a question for you as well. Isn't this sort of a microism of what our current status uh, in the United States is that as Christians with a Christian voice and and a biblical foundation and a, a story that leads to salvation that we need to uh, be willing to share the gospel 
each one of us, because if we don't and we turn our back on a, on a dying generation of people, that this isn't what we as Christians uh, should be doing, but we should be giving testimony of the truth that's within us. Um, do you think there's an analogy here to be made? No, absolutely. And I would, I would stretch this to how we think about uh, one of the men I studied on under has just come out with a book on cultural engagement. And what, one of the things that Dr. Bach makes in that point that he makes in that book is when people disagree with us, they're not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. They are people. And people need Jesus. And because they disagree with us doesn't make them their enemy. We may disagree, but we are here to represent our king. We're here to represent an alternative way for them to live. And so cultural engagement means we disagree with a lot of what's going on because it's offensive to God. But we don't hate them as our enemy. We hate Satan as our enemy who's energizing this rebellion. And we are, we are not at war with people. We're at war with Satan. That's why you put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6.10. And so this is what Jonah does not want God to show grace to these people. And I have a pretty strong sneaking suspicion that there are some evangelical Christians that do not want God to show grace on their political enemies. They would prefer that God wipe them out. And God may choose to do that, but that's not our business. What is our business? Think of Matthew 5. Be salt and light. Think of what we are. We are the citizens of Christ's kingdom representing him. And the opposition and the pushback is real. It is, no doubt about it. But our assignment is to represent Christ. And because we know God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy, that salvation is from the Lord. That's what Jonah's going to say. That's what we want to see happen. So how, Amen how, to that. How we put together our theology of cultural engagement is really important right now because we are in a minority. We are no longer setting the agenda for this civilization. And we got to accept that. And the solution is not a political solution or an economic solution or a financial solution. It's a spiritual solution found only in Jesus. And that's what we represent. And that's that's Jonah, doesn't, Jonah doesn't want to do this <laughs> because he knows what God will do. He'll rescue these people. And he doesn't want God to do that. All right, let's move on. Dr. Ackman? Uh, yes, somebody else has a question? Good question. The, the yeah. The evil in verse two, that's pagan evil, right? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Now, what is the Lord going to do with Jonah's open defiance as his prophet? But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now, the ESV, had, and it's a great translation, ESV has chosen to translate that hurled, and I like that. As a matter of fact, that's a very important word in this chapter. Look, I'm going to go through the chapter with chapter one. 
You see in verse 4, the world hurled. Then in verse 5, they hurled the cargo. Then in verse 12, what do you see? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then verse 15, they picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea. So that's kind of an important word. God is hurling the storm. Then they they will hurl the cargo over, and then they're going to hurl Jonah over. In other words, out of the ship. So that's kind of an important word. That's one of this is, by the way, I think I mentioned this last week. Jonah is a literary masterpiece. It's it's one of the most amazing books in the Old Testament. It is a literary masterpiece. It's it's it lit in a literary sense. It's perfect. It's balanced. It's it's an amazing book to study in the original language. Uh, and when I was in graduate school, I had a class just on Jonah in Hebrew, and it's an amazing study. It really was. So he hurls a great wind upon the sea, and meaning as a consequence, there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now remember, this is a merchant ship, a cargo ship that would travel from the eastern Mediterranean all the way over to the western Mediterranean. That's the direction this ship's going, because Jonah's fleeing from the Lord. So these are professionals. These, These are guys who do this for a living. But this storm is not a normal, ordinary storm. This is so severe, and the ESV has chosen to translate that term, mighty tempest. We don't talk like that. But it's a, a, a tempest is a storm that's out of control. It's so serious that this ship, now these ships were made of wood, but this is so serious, this ship's about to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. That's going to be another really important word. If you go over to uh, verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid. And then you go down to verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. Same Hebrew term. So their fear is of a storm. Then they're exceedingly afraid of the storm. Then they're exceedingly afraid of Yahweh. We'll talk about that development as we go through this this chapter. They're afraid, and each cried out to his God. Remember, these are polytheists. They're pagans. They believe in a world filled with gods, and so they're praying each to their own God, because this more than likely was uh, Phoenician, because the Phoenicians were the great traders and had people from multiple parts of the ancient world. So what did they do? They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the ship. Now he's gone down in the inner part of the ship. That's a metaphor. Jonah keeps sinking deeper and deeper into his sin. This is a metaphor, a figure of speech. But look at this. He had gone down to the inner part of the ship, had lain down, and was asleep. This is the sleep of defiance. This is the sleep of a rebel. God is about to wake him up. So the captain came in verse 6 and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? 
arise, call out to your God. Now, let your eye go up to verse 2. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. Same Hebrew word, arise, call out to your God. God, through this captain, is spiritually waking Jonah up. I hope you're catching the wordplay that's going on here in the original language. As Jonah defied God's command, arise, go to Nineveh, now God has sent a storm to wake Jonah up spiritually. He's asleep in the bottom part of the ship, and the captain says, call out to your God. Is Jonah going to do that? Jonah doesn't want to call out to his God. Jonah's running from the presence of his God. He's defying his God. And then the captain adds, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, again, I, I want to repeat, this is a common ordinary thing in a polytheistic world, which is the world in which these, these mariners lived. Every person had their own gods and they prayed to their gods and offered. So we, there's got to be a reason. And the only guy that isn't praying is this Jewish guy who's down in the bottom of the ship. So the captain goes down, arise, pray to your God. You must be the reason for this storm. So maybe your God will have enough thought of us to save us. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I hope you just get the incredible irony of all this, as well as the word plays going on. And God is waking Jonah up spiritually. So what happens? And they said one to the other. Now, the they would be the mariners, the, 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 uh, the merchants, the people who are in the ship. Said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. This, in the ancient world, this was a very common way of trying to figure out what the gods were doing. And so they cast lots, and it, how, what that looks like, exactly what that meant, I don't know. But however they cast lots, whether they drew straws or they put certain colored stones into a basket, and, and I don't know. Whatever it was, the lots pointed to Jonah. And they then said to him, Continuing then, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said, this is Jonah now speaking, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven, I'm using the Hebrew titles there, but they're very, very important. Who made the sea and the dry land. Now, I want to stop there for a little bit because, and, and really analyze Jonah's response to the series of questions from the mariner. He's not going to lie. He's not going to hide it. He, he's not going to be deceitful. He's not going to tell some other story. He's very, very forthright. I am a Hebrew. Now, that's that takes you back to Abraham, who is the first Hebrew, the father of the Hebrew people, as the text says in Genesis. Though he uses that, not I'm a Jew, 
where I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew, which is an ethnic characterization. They probably would have understood that a little bit better than I'm a Jew or I'm an Israelite. But then, again, this is a very open confession, a very open acknowledgement, and I fear. Now, I've told you this before, and I'll repeat it here. That term fear is a worship word. It can mean and often does mean, you know, you cower in fear. You, you, you are just absolutely shaking and trembling. It, it can and does mean that, but it's much larger in its contextual meaning. It's a worship word. I worship. I am devoted to, because remember, he is a prophet of God in the court of Jeroboam II. I worship I worshipfully stand in awe of Yahweh, the self-existent, self-sufficient, great I am of the universe, the Elohim of heaven. Now, the Elohim of heaven, that takes you back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, Elohim created. And what Jonah is saying is, this is really, really powerful, and it's really important. My God is the creator of everything. He made the sea. He made the dry land. He just summarized Genesis 1. Now, they don't know that. They don't understand that. They don't know anything about the Hebrew scriptures. But he, Jonah, is faithfully representing who his God is. And in a sense, then, what he's really declaring to these pagan polytheists is, I worship, I stand in awe of the one, true, only living God. You may not agree with that. You may not believe that. But I'm telling you, that's who I represent. And I repeat again, as I've said several times, he's a prophet of God in the court of a king. So he's declaring truth here. And remember, uh, as I said earlier, the captain wakes him up, but God is really waking Jonah up spiritually. And God is going to take his prophet and ensure that his prophet does what he, God, wants him to do. But he's got to get Jonah to repent. Jonah's speaking truth here, but do we see a repentant spirit? Let's read on. Verse 10, then the men, and here again is this intensity. They were afraid of the storm. Now what? They're exceedingly afraid. And said to him, to Jonah, what is this that you have done? Their lot, they cast lots, fell on Jonah. Now they hear, hear the language of Jonah. They know he's the reason for this storm. So they're terrified, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That's the third time this is used, that phrase, the presence of the Lord. You saw it in verse 2. You saw it in verse 3. Now you see it from the language, from the lips of these pagan polytheists. This man is running from the presence of Yahweh. And so now that's why they're terrified, 
because they're caught. They are threatened. Their lives are threatened because of Jonah. So what is going to happen here? What is going to occur? Well, starting with verse 11, let me stop for a moment. Any questions? This, I mean, this is a fairly easy to understand narrative, but I'm trying to really embellish the important words and terms of what is really going on here. Are you with me? Okay. So God can use the, the, the things of man, like this casting of lots, you know, that's been done before, but that was their reference, and then it fell on Jonah. And so they became believers that this was the guy and something that wasn't, didn't necessarily have a spiritual base to it. They were referencing their reference. Of, that's how we'll find out. Well, that's right. We're going to see what happens to these sailors in, in just a little bit, but that's right. I mean, they are, this is, and I, I think it's right to say it this way. What Jonah has said and what is happening to Jonah is a witness for God. This is a clear declaration that Jonah's God is the one true and only God, as you're going to see in just a minute. But it, it also is, as I think that's partially what you were saying as well, this also, when the matter of the lots and so on, this again is evidence of God's sovereignty and God's providence. The book of Proverbs says God controls the throwing of the lots. God's sovereign and providential involvement, he is in control of everything. What he wants to accomplish, he will accomplish, period, exclamation point. So Jonah, in open defiance of God, going in the opposite direction, God's waking him up spiritually, and God is reminding him of who he is. That is who he, God, is. Now, let's look at the rest of this, this chapter here. That we can, I'd like to get this finished before we, we are finished for today. And then verse 11. Then they said to him, they, the sailors, said to him, Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Why? Because the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, remember, the earlier term was a tempest. Now, what the ESV has done correctly in translating this Hebrew term, it's becoming more and more tempestuous. This is a storm. That Remember that movie years ago with George Clooney, The Perfect Storm? This is a perfect storm. And so these guys are seeing this and witnessing this. What do we do? You're the cause of this. What do we do? So he says, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now that's one of the key words of chapter two, chapter one. God hurled a strong wind that caused the tempestuous storm. They, they hurled the cargo off. Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Verse, the next verse, middle of verse 12. Because I know, this is Jonah speaking, because I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. There's Jonah's theology coming to the surface. I know what's going on here. 
I am defying God. I won't do what God wants me to do. So God is getting my attention through this storm. I know why it's happening. I find that just absolutely amazing. There's no uncertainty in Jonah's words. There's no lack of clarity. There's no ambivalence. I know why this storm is occurring. I'm defying God. And he's not going to let me do that. So, look, the solution is very easy, you, you, you polytheistic sailors. Hurl me into the sea and the storm will stop. It's that simple. So how do these sailors then respond? Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Again, that's another major theme of this, this chapter. Therefore, this is an amazing verse. This is an amazing verse. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Now, how do we evaluate verse 14? Will we see these Phoenician pagan sailors in heaven? Is this a statement of their personal belief? Or is this expediency? You know, I, I don't know if we can answer that. But if you look at the end of verse 16, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and made vows. Well, that's a little more important, a little more objective, a little more content. They make the statement as a prayer in verse 14. They fear the Lord exceedingly, and they sacrifice and make vows to him. Again, it is, I'm not comfortable with saying, absolutely, we'll see these men in heaven. But the testimony of Jonah in verse 9 is crystal clear in its clarity. Their prayer in verse 14 is crystal clear in its clarity. Yahweh caused the storm. Don't, don't lay on us innocent blood, meaning we don't want to be guilty of killing this man because you do as you please. So the result of that prayer is they pick up Jonah in verse 15, and there's our term again, hurled him into the sea. The Lord hurled the great wind, which caused a tempestuous storm. They hurled the cargo over the ship. They, Jonah says, hurl me. And now they hurl him into the sea. It's a key word. And what happens? And the sea ceased from its raging. 
we've seen in the Hebrew language the building up of the intensity of the storm as he tries to capture this growing intensity and immediately it ceases. As Jonah, defiance caused the storm. Jonah being hurled out of the boat ends the storm. And when they witness, there is no explanation for this except the supernatural explanation. There's no way you can reason your way out of this. That's a supernatural act. It was a tempestuous storm. One moment, we throw Jonah off the boat. The next moment, the sea stops. It's like a beautiful Minnesota lake on a lovely summer day. Absolutely still. That's exactly what happened. There's no other explanation for that. So that's why they respond in verse 14. They feared the Lord exceedingly. I did in my Bible, I took verse 10. They're exceedingly afraid of the storm to verse 16 and drew an, uh, a circle around it, connected with a line. Now they're exceedingly fearing Yahweh. Very different. It's a worshipful response to a supernatural miraculous explanation and resolution of their crisis. Jonah's running from God. God sent the storm. We're caught in the storm. We get rid of Jonah. God stops the storm. And they offer sacrifices to Yahweh and made vows. That's all we know. We know nothing else about these sailors. But if the grace of God will extend, as you'll see in the next, uh, in chapter three, if the grace of mercy of God will extend to the monstrous Assyrians who would stack the bodies at the gates of the cities they conquered and said, if you don't submit to us, this is what we'll do to you. And that's what God does. He extends grace and mercy. Could he extend grace and mercy to these sailors who heard the testimony of who he is, verse nine, saw his miraculous acts in verse, well, really the whole chapter, but in verse 15, where the storm stops the moment Jonah's hurled off of their boat. And then what they do is sacrifice and make vows. A vow is a promise. It's an oath. You're saying something in allegiance to that God. So if God's grace and mercy can extend to the Assyrians, could his grace and mercy extend to these mariners, these sailors on these Phoenician, this Phoenician ship? I would say yes, but I can't die for it. I don't know for certain. But certainly, if God is that gracious to the Assyrians, he can be that gracious to these sailors. I hope so. I hope so. I'd love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them in heaven, wouldn't you? And talk to them about this incredible experience. Now, we're not done. But are there any questions? I want to go to verse 17 yet. Is everybody with me? Verse 17 closes the chapter now. You're going to see this verb appointed a number of times in uh, the book of Jonah. But you see it here. This is the first time. And the Lord, there it is, Yahweh again, capital O, capital R, capital R, capital D, and the Lord appointed a great fish 
to swallow up Jonah. Now, I sure you know this. The term is not a whale. Um, we there's been so much written about this, so much, so many hypotheses and theories, and it seems to me this has usually been my position. If people can't really agree, that means we're probably never going to agree, because all the text says is the Lord appointed a great fish. This is the sovereign, providential God ordering one of his creatures to do something. In this case, it is an aquatic beast. It could be a whale, and usually people say it has to be a whale because that's the largest fish that could do this, but we don't know. So don't die on that hill. It isn't worth it. All the text says is God, Yahweh, appoints a great fish to do something. It's an infinitive of purpose to swallow up Jonah. Possibly, God created this unique aquatic animal to do just that. There's never been another animal like that. We just don't know that. All the Bible is telling us is that God sovereignly appointed a great fish to do something, to swallow up Jonah. And then, verse 17 said, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Jesus Christ will say, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, I will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, referring, of course, to his death and his burial. So when Jesus quotes that, Jesus is assuming and affirming that this is an historic event. This isn't a made-up story. This really happened. It's an historical event, and Jesus attests to its historicity. That it is true historical event. So now, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, has gotten Jonah's attention. He's awakened Jonah spiritually. God has Jonah where he wants him, in the belly of a fish. Because what God, now listen very carefully to the sentence, God needs to get Jonah to repent. Now, repent means to change your mind and change your direction. Jonah needs to change his mind and change his direction. He is defying God openly. He's got to knock it off. And he's got to do what God has assigned him to do. So, God will affect this repentance, E-F-F-E-C-T, will affect this repentance in the belly of the fish. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. And it's one of the most marvelous prayers in the Bible. Because Jonah is going to repent and agree, albeit reluctantly, to do what Yahweh wants him to do. Preach a message of salvation to the pagan Assyrians in Nineveh. All right. Jim, I got a question. This yes. Oh, um, there's a couple other words I think that could be used there. Uh, I'm not trying to change the Bible, but <laughs> what I'm talking about was uh, he caused the great fish yes. or he commanded 
the fish, the fish uh, yes, pretty much fits right in with that, doesn't it? Does. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Amen. It shows that he's totally in charge. That's correct, Woody. That's, yeah, that's where I'm going with that. That's right. I, ESV, I think the ESV has chosen to translate that appointed just to emphasize very strongly, again, the sovereignty of God here. He is directing one of his creatures to do something very specific. He's appointed him to do something. What is that? The infinitive of purpose, to swallow up Jonah. <laughs> so it's like God as God is appointing Jonah to go to Assyria and preach the gospel, God is appointing this fish to swallow Jonah. <laughs> and this is how God is going to get Jonah to repent, by demonstrating to Jonah his sovereignty and his grace. Jonah, I will show grace and mercy to the Assyrian, and you are going to be the one as a prophet who delivers that. You are going to do that, Jonah. Did you hear that? You are going to do it, Jonah. Jonah, are you not hearing? You are going to do it. And that's what Jonah's going to do in chapter 2, in this marvelous prayer, which we're going to study next week. All right, gentlemen. This is a neat book. I, I'd love to teach Jonah. It really is. Everybody knows it, but most people do not really really know the book. And, and that's what we're really trying to do in detailed analysis of each chapter of the book. All can, right. Can I ask a, a, a kind of a geeky question at the end of this chapter? Sure. sure. Um, I've got a couple of footnotes. One of them indicates that 2.1 is in Hebrew. Um, and, and it's on 117. So I was interested in what that meant. And the appointed... Um, also uses the um, uh, past perfect, as far as I can tell, had, like, this has already been done in advance. Um, what That's, exactly, that's exactly right. Okay. You could legitimately translate that past perfect, and the Lord had appointed. appointed. I mean, it's already done. He already yep. had created and purposed out this fish to accomplish it. It's, yeah. it's not a reaction. It's no, free. You no, know, it, no. it kind of just reemphasizes. Absolutely. Already knows the, he right. knows the end from the beginning. Got Why it. does it mention that 2.1 in 1.7 instead of tying that footnote to 2.1? Is there, every time I see something odd like that, there's always a greater excitement or truth that seems to be buried beneath it. Or is that just. I'm not. I'm not sure I understand your question. Two the, the, the ESV has a footnote, the first at the beginning that says that chapter 2.1 is in Hebrew. It was right at the beginning in the ESV. It's the first one, chapter 2, colon 1 in Hebrew. And I'm wondering why they wouldn't put that in chapter 2.1 instead of 1.17. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> Does it, is it a change from Aramaic or? No, no, no. Uh, it's, it's, no. Um, remember what they're telling. It's not. It's not real clear what they're telling you. They should explain that a little uh, more more completely. Uh, remember that, as with the New Testament, chapter breaks and verse enumeration comes much later. Mm -hmm. 
So what they're telling you, the Masoret, uh, um, I'm telling you more than you want to know. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. No, I the, do. The Masoretes the, the the had the chapter break with verse 17. Mm-hmm. So that really verse 17 should be verse 1 of chapter 2. In other words, the end of verse one, uh, chapter uh, 1 is made vows. The beginning of chapter 2 is, and the Lord appointed a great fish, then Jonah prayed. You see, that's they're just telling you, the Masoretes had the chapter break at a different point. Place. That's Got it. So, so, so this is the Masoretic text? Yeah, yeah. This is the original, the, 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 the uh, not the original, the mm-hmm. Hebrew editors mm-hmm. way, way back before Christ put the chapter break differently than the English Bible. Got it. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jim, for a good t- commentary today. You're you're welcome. It's a well. I I just decided a couple of months ago that we were going to go into the Old Testament, and I thought, you know, I know these guys know the story of Jonah, but but they really don't know the story of Jonah. So we're going to study it, and we just got started. So you're all going to write a very important paper for me at the end of chapter four. So keep good notes, keep on top of all this. I'm just kidding you, but just makes me feel good to tell you that. <laughs> All right. I'm going to pray. And again, uh, and then I've got to go right away, but happy Thanksgiving. Hope you have a blessed day tomorrow. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Jonah. It is a marvelous, magnificent, uh, tremendously important book. Jesus quotes from it. Jesus alludes to Jonah as an historical figure. It's important for us to see that what is motivating Jonah in his defiance of God, as he knows what God's like, that God will save these Assyrians, and he doesn't want him to do that. Lord, one of the guys said, I forget who it was, but one of the guys said, that's kind of the way we can be here in 2021, 2020 and 21st century. We know what God is like, and sometimes we don't even want God to show mercy on other people. Lord, help to strip us from any kind of thinking like that. You are a merciful, gracious God, And the greatest evidence of that is he saved every one of us. We are the trophies of his grace. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of that message. The gospel is for everyone. And we want to represent you well. As Jonah will do to the Assyrians. And they will repent. And you will show grace and mercy on them. We will see some of them in heaven. Lord, help us to remember that the grace and mercy you showed us is available to all people. So we commit all this to you. May they have a spirit of thanksgiving and praise for all that you've done for them. It's been a hard year, but in spite of that, we still have much for which to be thankful. Commit these men to you as strong men of faith in Christ's name. Amen. Take care, Matt. Thanks again. Thank you, Jim. You bet.